Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, you can go to biota.org slash podcast. We have three callers, so I'm going to uh, introduce them. Hello, first caller. Hello, it's Jeffrey. Oh, hi, Jeffrey. Good to talk oh. to you. How are you? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. I really enjoyed the photos from your event up in San Francisco. Oh, good, uh, yeah. We'll fun. need to chat about those sometime. Okay. Hello, second caller. Hi, this is Chris. Hi, Chris. Good to have you on, which hey. means the third caller is probably Bruce Damer. That's right. Hello, Bruce. Hello, hello. So because we have Chris on this evening, I'm going to uh, cut down the news and notes just to say that next Friday... 16th of May, 8 p.m. Pacific, we are going to have Biotazone Dick Gordon on to talk about theoretical biology, physics, and second life, and possibly a number of other topics as well. Dick Gordon's one of these amazing polymaths that kind of bends into the artificial life community, and it'll be wonderful to have the opportunity to chat to him on a Biota Live. For folks interested in calling in then, the number to call in, 646 that number works this evening as well, and we also have a chat window for folks who don't want to call in. Chris, as this is the first time we've had you on a, a biota-related podcast, would you like to give an introduction? Um, sure. I, I, I mean, I've been in the game industry for a very long time. Um, have still yet to ship a game. I'm sort of the, the most well-known game developer who's never shipped a game. Currently uh, working on Spore. I think you had a podcast with some stuff from Will a, a little bit ago. Um, and we are going to ship sometime in September. So, and uh, let's see. I mean, I've been involved with the Game Developers Conference for a long time, written articles for the mag Game Developer Magazine, that sort of thing. Just kind of out and about. And I know you've listened to the last podcast with regards to the Artificial Life SDK, but if someone were to come up to you on the street and say, an Artificial Life SDK, what do you think is the need in contemporary game development for such a thing? Well, I think that, I think it's a complicated question because I think that like there's a question, there's a broader question of what is the need for or you know demand um, or ability to provide a general AI SDK, and then a life being a you know a sort a type of AI um, uh, is kind of subsumed into that overall question. I think there's questions um, you know that are actually being you know asked in the industry uh, now because people are starting companies and you know there's a few different uh, AI companies out there and and people are trying to figure out you know AI being one of the most important components of the game in kind of the last uh, kind of uncharted territory. We've kind of figured out graphics pretty well. Not that there aren't amazing things to come in the next 50 years for graphics, that's clear, but we kind of know a, a path there. Um, physics is, is pretty easy to integrate into games nowadays. Um, AI is kind of the next big chunk. Um, uh, the problem is AI is really much much poorly, more poorly understood than those other ones, um, and there's no metrics for actually judging whether you're doing a good job often except for playtesting. And so that all of those things kind of sum up to make it very difficult to know. Um, it, it, you can, it's hard to make an SDK for something when you don't actually know what the problem is you're solving. Um, I think it's a fundamental problem. Um, and so AI is kind of the, at, the, at the far extreme of that um, in terms of us not knowing what we're doing yet. So, Jeffrey, in terms of the, the problem that an artificial life SDK would be solving, how do you think you'd summarize that for, for people like Chris? Uh, it depends on the problem, which I think is what Chris said. Uh, you know, uh, if you if you have a, a if you, if your goal is to create a spore-like game, well, that presents certain problems, um, and then there are certain there's a whole sphere of kinds of solutions for that. Um, and then if you're making, um, you know, I think there's lots of different kinds of games. Some might be more a life a life oriented. Some might be more AI oriented. Um, I think it really depends on the problem. So I. Don't, I don't know if I really answered the question. <laughs> oh, so I, I gave a lecture at the GDC this year, at the Game Developers Conference this year, and um, sort of the 10-second version of the lecture is that things like the triangle or the rigid body um, are kind of the lingua franca of graphics and um, physics in terms of the kinds that we use for games right now. And, and uh, things like the texture map triangle uh, have certain characteristics, um, and what I call them, I call it in a structure and style decomposition, um, where you have this amazing structure that the code can reason about. You know, you can hit test them or render them onto the screen or figure out whether they're planar or whatever. Well, triangles are always planar, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, but also, an artist can can author them. The geometric positions, the texture map, all of those things are just completely data driven by the artist. And uh, that we, we sort of have some equivalence of that in physics, and we have nothing like that in AI. There's no base level components where um, that we know work and scale very well. Um, and so I think that's another aspect of that uh, of that problem of 
there's it, it that's what makes it hard to plug into a game i can you know you can you can switch your game between OpenGL and d3d without much trouble i mean it's a pain it's a lot of typing but it's not that big a deal right they both render triangles um but trying to swap out the ai of a game for another game um which is kind of what an, a, an sdk is about it's kind of abstracting that um is just incredibly difficult i mean it's like it's got tendrils everywhere because it's not well understood there's no interfaces and i think that's not surprising at all right Right. I mean, I mean it's, yeah, it's the hardest problem. <laughs> yeah, right. But in terms of an artificial life SDK, you're talking about ecosystems, you're talking about independent agents within ecosystems. I mean, I think in terms of the artificial life community, the metrics are pretty well understood in terms of what goes into an artificial life environment and in terms of what is needed in a game environment, in terms of evolving ecology and these kind of things. That seems to be the then with regards to an artificial life SDK. What's your thinking with regards to this, Bruce? Well, it, it really depends on what you're trying to do in the game. I think a, a pure, the, the realm of pure A-Life games, as, as Jeffrey can testify, is fairly small and limited. Uh, if we talk about what is a, a true A-Life game, uh, I think that it's an un, unspoken for frontier. I think I, I just came in from six hours of gardening and putting in trees and plants mm-hmm. and things, and if someone made an incredible L system or other generated generative uh, garden growing game, I think there's a market for that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just not been tapped. I think we have to step outside the box when we talk about AI or A-life a in, in games. We, we're very much in the box, and I think Chris can, can vouch for this, in a certain modalities of how games are put together and what people expect, and we, it, it's going to stretch what we think of as a game. Yeah, I think that I think that um, game, the, so there's you know there's there's all kinds of conversations we can have about the state of you know commerce in the game industry and you know sequelitis and all of those sorts of things. But in general. Um, Game developers and designers and, and and people you know marketing the games. It's not that they want to necessarily do the same thing over and over again. It's that it's very difficult to not do the same thing over and over again when your metrics for success are what you know you set a player down in front and they need to have a well crafted experience. Um, and hopefully that includes some emergence, so it's not totally predictable. But it needs to be. Um, but it, it has to it has to have some predictable level of of entertainment value, I guess. Um, and I don't mean I doesn't I'm I'm avoiding the word fun on purpose just because I think that eventually games will kind of you know will g- escape from just being fun and will have other emotional content the same way film and books and literature and mu- music does. But yeah, I think that it, it's it's so ambiguous or so amorphous what we're even trying to do. It's still such the such the art form aspect of it as opposed to the science that it's it's just very hard to say um, where things that directly like, unlike, I mean, rendering, um, for example, affects the game, obviously, like, you know, Grand Theft Auto looks different from Crackdown or whatever, but uh, not to the same extent that the AI does, where the AI is the fundamental thing the player's interacting with. And so having that, that has to have this customized feel, which is not to say that you can't do it with an SDK. I mean, we have customized graphics feels with an SDK, but it has to be a better understood problem before that becomes kind of tractable. And so I think what you're saying about um, games, uh, you know, different kinds of games using A-Life and things like that, um, I've seen people talk about, you know, how to do crowd simulation and things like that using different kinds of um, A-Life technologies and things like that. Those those are all interesting, but the fundamental core thing that interests me the most is where what what happens to the core piece of AI, the the thing that the player is interacting with. You know, it's easy to do, or relatively speaking, easy to like put some ambient stuff in the background that doesn't really affect much. You know, it has very few outputs, very few inputs, and I think those kinds of things fall fall to SDKs much easier. And that's but those aren't the actual interesting things either. Those are you know, I mean, there might be a good business to be made there, and there's some interesting algorithms, but it's not necessarily the core thing, which is what's the player's experience. To give some clarification with regards to my own thinking in this, an artificial life SDK relates to the whole environment and relates to components in the environment that the player interacts with, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an organic environment. You can have a, a robotic artificial life SDK, you can have a kind of dark future element with regards to cityscapes and things like that. I mean, I think the analogy with regards to graphics is poor in terms of the artificial life SDK because you're not dealing with piecemeal components in the environment, you're dealing with the surrounding environment and the way that the environment interacts to the, the, the player. So, I mean, that may be the breakdown analogy with regards to an AI SDK and artificial right. SDK explicitly. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. I, I, I'm thinking that maybe one of the components to an A-Life or a AI SDK would be autonomy. And autonomy doesn't exist in graphics that, that I can think of, um, right. nor, does, nor does it exist in, in physics. 
um, if you if you count if you think of physics as just sort of ambient things fall things bump into each other things move things rotate but an artificial life or AI SDK involves autonomy otherwise it's not a life and um, perhaps that makes it distinctly different from from other you know components of an SDK or other SDKs. Well, uh, so on the autonomy point, I think is kind of interesting because I would actually say claim that physics has an aspect of that in the sense that basically when I think of autonomy, I think of you know kind of like an initial value problem or, or a differential equation that evolves over time. You know, you plug in, you give it a new dt, you know, time, step time for it, and new state happens and it changes the world state. So in that sense, whether it's changing based on you know Newton's Newton's equations um, or or you know some cellular automata kind of thing, I still think that those are similar in the sense that there's state being changed by this kind of structured system. Yeah, the, the, you might use the word agentry then, agentry, mm -hmm. which, which is another term that people throw around, uh, which might be another, uh, another way to describe what I'm trying to say. Right. I mean, in, in physics, you, the kind of farthest you get down that axis before you start calling it AI is like controllers. Like you might have a pro proportional derivative controller that kind of keeps the robot's arm bent or, you know, kind of tries to yeah. keep balance. But after that, it starts to, yeah, definitely become sort of AI-ish. And right. you kind of, you know, you don't want as if you want your physics simulator to, to be predictable or at least, you know, plausibly, you know, consistent, like you try and keep as few, as few if statements in there as possible. <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? Like um, right. it's a lot more continuous. Um, on, the, on the SDK, really quick to... Um, Tom's point about kind of the piecemeal aspect, the, the kind of terminology I use for that is frameworks versus toolkits. It's kind of a common terminology in the SDK, in, you know, in various SDK kind of worlds, where a framework is kind of a thing you plug into. You know, you, you buy a framework, like let's say the Unreal Engine, big giant thing, um, and it's uh, very quick and easy to get like the first level up and running because, hey, it's already built to do that, but it's very hard to make it do something very different from what it was intended to do. It's this big monolithic kind of uh, high inertia, high friction environment versus a toolkit, which is something much more like, you know, um, a, an audio library or OpenGL or D3D, which is kind of a leaf of the giant tree that is your piece of software. And yeah, and I think the question is, frameworks sometimes work well if you're trying to do something like Unreal or, you know, the Quake Engine where you're doing something that's very similar. You know, you sh you sh if you showed a non-gamer two different Unreal games, they would be like, yeah, this is the same game, right? You know, it's just, you know, the difference between Half-Life and Counter-Strike, just most people is, is, is lost if you're not a gamer. So the framework kind of implies a lot of uh, kind of, um, it has a lot of a priori like state associated with it. Whereas a toolkit, you can like make a lot of different things and you have to figure out, but toolkits are harder in the sense that they're, you have to figure out what that like, you know, what the triangle of AI is to do that very well. In terms of this dissection, certainly in my own thinking coming to this discussion, I thought is an SDK the wrong framing with regards to what we're talking about in artificial life? Perhaps it could be done through a book and certainly with regards to AI in games, there are books that are equivalent to what we are discussing with regards to an SDK or potentially a kind of collation website or, or example code. Chris, in terms of your own thinking for this kind of thing, do you think an SDK is the way to go or do you think we should approach it through one of these other methods that I've described? Yeah, I think actually the, the latter stuff you were describing is much, it would be much more effective. If only from the standpoint of, you know, that in, in programming there's this, uh, kind of, um, aphorism, um, you have to use before you reuse, um, which I think is really true. Like, uh, if you try and write your reusable code before you actually know what kind of code you're writing, it's very difficult. And so, because we're so clueless about, um, AI or a, in general and A-Life specifically in the sense of how to make it work in games, trying to do an SDK, which implies to me some kind of reusability kind of productization is, seems premature. Whereas books and examples Examples, especially examples. The game industry basically runs on exam on demos, basically, you know, in the sense that if you go in for an interview and you've got a really nice resume, um, that's nice. But if you go into an interview and you set your laptop down and show the person something they've never seen before, like you've got the job immediately. And because the, it, it you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. So, yeah, I think that um, people making demos, you know, things, I mean, even simple stuff that's like, you know, I mean, Flash has gotten pretty powerful these days, and I saw, I've seen some Java AI stuff out there, like, you know, doing things, demos that you can easily show, and, you know, if you need to, if you need to write, you know, full compiled downloadable executable, as long as, it's, as, long as the results are really cool, those are, just, and, 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 and it, like I said, books and websites, I think that's a, a much better way to go, because you can, you can immediately show that to someone and say, like, look, this is different from anything you can get right now, and it's because, you know, of the AI component or of the physics component or this neat trick I discovered in graphics or whatever. So the discussion in terms of a community, if, if we as a community brought together a collection of examples and start refining it, how would we continue to continue this discussion with the game development community after these example codes were kind of picked up and, and put in various games or tested or these kind of things? In terms of the existing artificial life community, it's 
quite in some regard informal and in some regard formal uh, in terms of the kinds of communication. But once this information gets out in the wild, how do we continue to have that interaction with the game development community? Well, I think that means, so I think that what would happen, I mean, this kind of thing is not a top-down, you know, kind of uh, managed ecosystem economy. You know, it's not, it's not centrally planned. Yeah, essentially, it's not centrally planned at all. But what would happen is you'd put up this website, and you know there'd be you know 20 demos, and and 18 of them would be crap because hey, you know Sturgeon's law is in effect in, uh, in everywhere, um, and then you know two of them would be totally awesome, and the game industry would notice that, or someone in the game industry would be surfing this website and find that it would be forwarded around, and those people would get hired. <laughs> that's how it come. that's the communication that would happen initially. Once there started to be this like tool, like uh, like kind of um, oh, what was interesting about those two would then I mean in kind of a meta a a life kind of thing that would breed more um, stuff you know what's what was successful you know there's kind of a fitness function of coolness that's happening here on this website right you know there would be more and more um, hopefully and you you'd want, wouldn't want to get stuck stuck in local maxima just exactly like you know we, we all talk about when we're actually programming these things but you'd have this kind of like natural bottom-up evolution of what's cool what's working there's there's a question of how you actually show this stuff off a lot of AI researchers and I think some a life people have tried doing mods to existing games like half-life and I think people plugged into stuff to descent back in the day and quake and, and Unreal, and I think those are some interesting things. You have to, when plugging into a game like that to do a demo, you have to really show results that feel like when you play it, you have to be really open-minded as the researcher what it feels like to play with. You can't just say, "Oh, I plugged it in and it works as I intended it." It has to actually feel compelling. Like, so you need to play test. You know, you need the actual external kind of verification that, that the stuff is interesting. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to show off these demos, um, and I think that would be great. I think that's a really um, interesting way to proceed. I think it's it, it, it and it it's time for that. It's it's premature for the SDK, in my opinion. Jump, just jumping in here uh, to bring in a discussion that happened at the, the our first Graysum Bay Area meeting in San Francisco. I, I think it came uh, from Jeffrey when you kind of said, "Yeah, I'm really interested in in uh, having gene pool." continue to evolve and maybe putting it into a 3D environment with physics. And then my ears perked up because I thought, hmm, project. And because we have this open source framework with physics that we've been building with NASA for four or five years, and it just struck me, wow, great demonstration project uh, for what we're talking about. And then it ties into my evil grid idea that, that everyone's picked up on. And Jeffrey's got a lot of of insight into. And so anyway, and then I had a conversation with Jerome Lepre, who's working at California Academy of Sciences, and he's he's tracking us because he's saying basically, look, if you can get gene pool into a 3D environment for physics, we will want to really seriously look at it using it here at the Academy in one of our new display, you know, the enormous building opening in September. And he said, we are looking for anything biologically inspired uh, for to fill our space. And we're doing an L system, a plant system for the rooftop garden to try to represent that in the building. But anyway, so it all cool. seems to, isn't that cool? Yeah, is that like art, like an art installation kind of thing, right? Yeah, like a interact, even possibly interactive on large screens. Uh, I'm going down to Cal IT Squared in a week, uh, which is this you know, big university consortium in San Diego, and they're looking for this type of thing for their huge display system. That They've got a 100-megapixel display system uh, in, in dome buildings. It's amazing stuff. And every time I mention to Larry Smarr or John Graham, I mention artificial life, they're like, oh, this is exactly what we want to have on our in our immersive environments because they're so compelling. And, you know, we know from years of SIGGRAPH that, People really love those environments. So, anyway, it's a it's a vector to show the world uh, and the game development community that you can make something truly compelling. Uh, maybe we can do it. Yeah, that 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 makes me think about you know really large displays. You you kind of become immersed in it, not in the same way, not in the same sense of immersion as immersive virtual reality, but it's it's surrounding you in a sense. It's a big part of your virtual visual field and you feel like you're one of the creatures or you could feel like you're one of the creatures whereas looking at a computer screen it's always like you're looking into a petri dish or something yeah i actually think that one of the i mean just this is separate from the games this is just kind of a rant in general about 
art on computers. I think that one of the things that computers, like that, what you're saying there, the separation, I mean, as long as it's on a TV screen or a monitor, I think it's going to be hard pressed for people to be uh, convinced that it's like art on on the you know level of an oil painting or something like that. So they have to differentiate and whether that's a really giant projection thing or whether that's interactivity or whether that's some of these like high dynamic range displays they've been showing at SIGGRAPH for the, couple, the past couple of years. Something needs to like take it and set it apart from just like, oh yeah, that's just a picture on my monitor. Chris was talking about um, physics and graphics, and you know these are things that are that are fairly well well established. You know we've got Second Life, we've got these different game engines that you can that you can use, um, and 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 again, um, uh, AI and A Life are not well defined, but some things that are somewhat more defined are um, genetic algorithms and neural nets. And if you think about neural nets as sort of representing brains, what's what's happening inside of our craniums? which, you know, it's kind of like a black box in a way, and also genetics, which is similar as well. Perhaps if there could be some SDKs or frameworks for those two components, which you could then lay on top of a, an existing game engine, you might have all you need for most purposes. Yeah, the, the, there's actually been a bunch of work, not, not so much with genetic algorithms, um, but a, a ton of people have worked on neural net stuff in games and trying to get it into games. Like Both researchers doing like these plugins, like I said, you know, m- making AIs and then running them inside Half-Life to see how they feel to play. Or uh, there, was some, there was some work presented at the GDC a couple of years ago about um, some neural net stuff um, for soccer players in FIFA, you know, it's, an, it's a product from EA Canada, um, did a bunch of soccer games and things like that. Um, in general, m- most of the t- stuff with neural nets has not worked out very well because I was, I was actually reading, or I can't remember if I was listening, I was doing my ho- trying to do my homework here, with listening to one of the podcasts, or, or I think it was one of the Steve Rand interviews, but talking about how basically they're missing this level of kind of predictable and un- unpredictability, like, you know, it kind of grinds away for a while and it just is totally, you know, you, you end up with mush at the end, and so you need these crisp you, you sort of, for, for it to feel like a different experience, they, 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 they often don't work out um, for games. And so I think that I, I am open-minded about this stuff. Like, I mean, I'm super open-minded about AI in general. I think hard AI will be solved at some point in my lifetime. But, yeah, the results so far are not incredibly compelling, and I think people need to work harder at making the compelling results with an eye towards, you know, what it feels like to interact with it in the world, as opposed to just, you know, an academic, like, interest in, hey, I got some neural nets into the thing. So, yeah, I, I'm all for it. It's just, again, there's just this really strict, there's really sharp razor in the game industry of, like, is it cool or is it fun or is it, you know, compelling or emotional or whatever. And perhaps in contrast, to what Jeffrey said, I mean, my feeling with regards to stable ecosystems, and not just ecosystems with regards to, you know, harvestable plants or interactable animals, but also thinking of cityscapes and these kind of environments as ecosystems as well, and using artificial life principles in those kind of simulation environments. I think from my own experience with regards to crafting uh, stable ecosystems and then pulling things out and putting things back in, I think there's probably a greater degree of, of stable interaction in terms of long-term concerns with regards to game plan, things of this nature. But returning to a point you made with regards to creating a website and having 20 or so uh, of these kind of examples on there. Can, can, I, can I mention your, 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 the stable ecosystem point I think is really interesting um, because actually I've been talking to uh, uh, some people around here we were talking about SimCity the other day because Will, you know, our boss, made SimCity. And it's interestingly not stable but it's not stable in an interesting way. Like if it was stable it would be boring, right? But you can't actually ever ever get it to equilibrium, and that's kind of like a fundamental tenet of game design, where you know you play SimCity and you think you've got it, and everyone's kind of happy, but oh, taxes are a little bit too high, or it swings, or a disaster happens, and that in that instability, and it's an instability, it's an interesting instability, but in that instability comes the gameplay. In my own, in my own methodology, what you've described as being instability, as in oscillations and cycling systems, are still, mm. as far as I see it, stable systems. From an well, I mean, in other words, the player, the player has to, the player, the game doesn't. Play Play itself basically, right? The player has to act and raise taxes, or you know, build a new you know hospital or whatever, or else the thing will fall apart. So that that was what I meant as instable. But I mean, that's the nature of the simulation. They're decaying simulations in that regard. The beauty of artificial life methodology is it gives you the the tools to tune simulations. And Will was obviously a pioneer with regards to what he did through the games that you've described. But returning to this idea of of twenty examples on a screen, mm-hmm. how does one get firstly uh, critical eyes on that? And also, in terms of what you've described with regards to interaction and the the level of interaction that's required, do you think that that is something that could exist through single-page flash examples, perhaps with access to source code? I mean, what kind of does it need additional descriptions? Does it need atmosphere? What would what would catch game developers' eyes with regards to this? 
Right. Well, I think that okay, so the, the the beauty of the internet and like viral kind of you know feedback loops is that you don't need much marketing. So I don't you don't need to worry about that. You just need to get it like you know someone has to notice it and put it on dig, and then you'll have more traffic. You'll your crash your site will go down because there's so much traffic, right? If it's cool. Um, so I wouldn't worry about that end. I think I would focus everything on the so getting in other words getting the eyeballs is not the problem. You know you forward someone an email and if it's cool they forward it to ten of their friends and it's in your you know all of a sudden you've got a ton of traffic. The the bigger question is how what do you, what do you actually make? And I think the fundamental, there's a kind of a fundamental bifurcation is do you try and make a game or do you try and make a demo of the technology or, you know, algorithm that you're trying to do? And I think you want to, I think the decision there is is either, you know, one, either one could be the appropriate thing. Like there are plenty of graphics demos that are not games that are still easily, you can easily see how you would apply that technique. You know, most of the physics flash, you know, there's a ton of these 2D physics engines in flash nowadays because finally, you know, as of last year, Adobe like revved the flash VM so it's actually fast enough to to do some actual real programming in. And so now there's just, you know, I mean, there's like at least 10 of these, you know, flash. If you type, you know, flash physics into into Google, you'll find just tons of these. And they're really cool. You know, there's hundreds of stacking bodies, and it's pretty cool. They're very um, cool. Yeah, and so you can see how to apply that. With AI, it's difficult, right, because we said AI is so much poorly, much more poorly understood. But you could, you could do demos like that, you know, flocking demos, things like that. I mean, you know, Craig Reynolds' stuff from years ago has been in Flash and Java and every, you know, language, you know, Python and whatever. But you have to say, you, you have to show something that's cooler than that, right? Like, it's easy to do a flocking, flocking demo in Flash, and in fact, you, if you, you know, go out there and look at some of these Flash demos, there's some crazy stuff that people do because they actually have the graphics end of it, you know, as well. But in terms of presentation, I don't think you have to worry too much about how pretty the pixels are, but you need to, you need to have a nod towards at least having some design there. One of the interesting things in schools nowadays is a lot of these game development departments like at USC and at, at Georgia Tech and, and CMU actually mix together art and uh, programming uh, in a kind of cross-disciplinary sort of way. Way, and that's, that's produced some really interesting people uh, have come out of those departments. We have a bunch of them on staff, and there's a bunch elsewhere. But so I think these examples could be games. That's uh, obviously, like, I mean, if you can show a game with one of these A-Live technologies, you're golden, right? Or they could just be demos. It's just going to depend on what the thing you're trying to show. The, the core thing they have to be is compelling, though. That's what promotes sticks. That's what promotes eyeballs. I mean, I think it's a mm-hmm. catch-22 in that regard. But in terms of the artistic component and the atmosphere, do you think artificial life developers should reach out to artists and, and make contact and communication in order to create those kind of initial demos? Do you think that's critical? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would say it's critical. It certainly wouldn't hurt. Like in other words, if you know, if you had, if there were, if there were two demos out there on this page, and one of them was programmer art, and one of them, you know, got some crazy experimental artist who was really good. <laughs> like you know, which one person people would click on first? That's just human nature. People, you know, are just drawn towards, you know, compelling, you know, visually. You know, audio is also important. The, uh, you can just go to a site like Congregator Newgrounds and see some of these demos, the stuff that you know, some of these flash games and stuff that rise up, and you can kind of see. You know, at what level things look amateurish versus professional. At you know, um, how to you know, people a good artist, um, someone with a good aesthetic sense will know. You know, okay, we're not going to spend a zillion dollars making this demo, but I can do these quick little things here and there. So I think the pixels are somewhat important. I think that at the core of it, though, if you ended up you know making a really pretty pong game that just felt exactly like playing normal pong, and you couldn't tell that there was an A life or a you know a neural net on the other side of it, you it wouldn't have matter how pretty it is. So it has to come down to like what is the actual interaction and the gameplay or, you know, the behavior of the thing. So say, I mean, I'm just pulling a number, you know, out of a hat, but like, say you want to spend 10 or 15% of your time thinking about the presentation, but you want that rest, you know, and then 5% of the time thinking, thinking about marketing it in viral loops, and then the rest of that, whatever that is, 80%, you want to spend on making sure the behavior is actually innovative or compelling or, you know, it's simpler to program or whatever the way you're trying to, you know, provide value. In terms of the strengths of artificial life, in terms of stable simulation environments, and things like this. If you're dealing with a flash environment and particularly people just viewing a website for a short period of time, they may not get the full level of detail in terms of the interaction. Chris, can you describe how you might persuade the user that that exists there when they may only have you know a 10-second to one-minute right. viewing window. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 there's two things I would say there. Uh, one thing is um, we, we have that problem right now, you, you know, testing games that have gameplay loops, you know, second-to-second gameplay loops are really easy to test. You compile the game, you load it up, and you go, nope, that didn't work. You know, minute-to-minute so like, minute loops are like, okay, let me try this for a little bit, and now my, you know, it's kind of 
pretty somewhat frictionful, but there are, you know, lots of games with hour-to-hour loops. You know, you're playing, you know, Grand Theft Auto 4 just came out, and, like, there's stuff that happens at hour 30, and how do you test that? And that we, we run into that problem right now without any life or anything like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. If you're trying to do these really long-term loops, you have a much higher burden of testing. It's, it's, it's hard if you can do things like record, you know, giant blocks of it, and then, you know, you know playback aspects of, you know, interesting points. You have to ask yourself, what, what is the long-term value if you've got a thing that is just really subtly manifests itself over time, over a period of hours or something like that, you have to ask, okay, is that actually providing value? Like, will the player actually notice? So we, we, in, profession, in, you know, in commercial game development, there's a lot of stuff that gets cut because there's just no way to really surface it to the player. Cool stuff. But it's just like, wow, the player won't even really know that's going on there. And sometimes that happens in AI a lot, where it's like, you could make the AI smarter or more interesting in a way that the player couldn't ever notice, and that's wasted work if the player can't see it, right? I want to say one more thing uh, about something you said earlier about the artists. I think you, there's a there's already, it seems like if you go online and look at like computer art, those kinds of artists are already like quite into kind of algorithmic generation and that kind of thing. So I don't think you would have that much trouble finding cool, you know, artists that are like kind of continent interested in the kind of same stuff as you guys are. I think the legacy with regards to Vita in particular shows that there's a huge fan with regards to the artificial life community and the artistic community. In fact, most artificial life artists consider themselves as, as part of the artificial life right. community. An interesting point that you mentioned in terms of the player interaction, I mean, my own sense, and obviously you have a very intimate sense with regards to Will Wright's legacy, but it is with regards to finding a certain obsessive group of players that will be really interested in tinkering with certain components. I mean, without giving away any trade secrets, are these kind of demographics broken down in terms of looking at, you know, we want the particular nerd players to get excited at this point or these kind of things through gameplay? Yeah, I don't think, I, I, I actually don't think there are any trade secrets to give away here. I think that it was uh, the Hollywood quote of nobody knows nothing or whatever, you know, it's like people do studies about the way games have attracted people, games that have already shipped that were successful or, you know, unsuccessful, but there's very little predictive uh, capacity that's gained from those studies. But with The Sims, they, I know that they've done some stuff and published some stuff on the four kinds of players that The Sims gets, and I can't remember all four of them, but, you know, there's the people who actually play the game for, like, you know, the, the, the spreadsheet aspect of the game, like, I'm going to buy the car, and then I'm going to get the thing, and they're kind of, like, leveling up. They're the people who cheat and get money and then just design houses. Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a much more creative thing. There's the people who um, kill their Sims in interesting ways, right? Just the people who, like, kind of, you know, experiment with the simulation. Um, you know, what happens if I, you know, take the ladder out of the pool? Oh, they die. You know, like that's someone, a player discovered that kind of thing. Uh, this, this sounds like very similar categories for Second Life. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was, I was going to bring up Bartle's thing in a second, but and then I think there was the people who like kind of make kind of basically storybooks. They like pose their guys, kind of like a machinima kind of thing. They pose their Sims and whatnot, and then take pictures and then write stories about what happened. And it's not necessarily that they're playing that story, but that they create you know kind of ex post facto put that story on top of what happened. And so and and, and similarly in the MMO community, in the massively multiplayer online community, this guy named Richard Bartle has done a bunch of research, and other people, Castronova, have done a bunch of research on different kinds of players. There's Bartle has his, I think it's a triangle of like killers, adventurers, explorers, or whatever. You know, there's a bunch of different kinds, and you can find all this stuff online. So I think that those, the different kinds of players, oh, and uh, another reference would be um, her company is called uh, Zeo Design, X-E-O-D-E-S, you know, design. It's going to come to me in a minute. But uh, she, she's broken down the different kinds of fun and players that, you know, and you can kind of like um, see, you know, the different reasons people play games. You know, oh, they want power fantasy, or oh, they want mentoring, or, you know, to mentor someone and to see them be successful, that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of actual research out about different reasons play, people play games, different kinds of people who play games, that kind of thing. The problem is, actually, there's almost so much research and so much, it's, it's hard to, to, to make any kind of predictive thing from that. It's hard to know. It doesn't necessarily point you in a direction, except for, yeah, it'd be great if we like made a game that satisfied all of those people. In terms of the pragmatic nature of the game development process, are decisions made where you would identify particular you know, the game players and say, this section is going to be written for them or we're going to tune this so these people will get more enjoyment out of this particular section. Oh, totally. I mean, you definitely think of your demographics when you're playing it. Like, I mean, you might be making a, you know, what some people call a core game, what, you know, a hardcore game. Like, if you're making Gears of War, you know, which is like an Xbox 360 game with lots of aliens and space marines, I mean, you know you're not making it for people's moms, right? <laughs> so, whereas if you're making The Sims, you're not making decisions. You know, the aliens don't come down and blow up your 
house um, because that would make me cool if you were, you know, a 13-year-old boy, but not cool if you were, you know, a 35-year-old woman. So, yeah, you definitely are making decisions constantly about who your audience is. I think you want to, games that only focus on who your audience is and try and maximize that as opposed to kind of doing something that has some internal integrity tend to fail. You know, they tend to be, you know, kind of like movies that do that, right? You end up with a movie that's like seems like it was machine generated, right? So you want that artistic kind of like passion there, but you definitely like, I mean, the best way people talk about to have that happen is by making games for yourself. You often read interviews with people who are successful game developers and they say things like, you know, we just made a game that was fun for us to play. I mean, that's what the guys at Blizzard always talk about doing and Valve and, you know, all of these really high-end, super successful companies. They just make a game that they know is cool and they know that they're their audience. If you are a demographic that is also has another 6 million people in it, then you're golden. In terms of Flash games, I mean, this, this may be the problem that artificial life developers may be in a very small demographic and in terms of creating their own kind of flash games. I mean, what kind of advice would you give to artificial life developers in terms of expanding their demographic interests and thinking about other kinds of game players? Well, if you're making a game, the easiest and best thing to do ever is playtest your game. Watch someone, sit, sit someone down, whether it's your cousin or your mother or your, you know, whatever, your kids, your friends' kids, whatever. You sit them down in front of the computer and you don't say a word and you watch what they do. And it's the most horrific experience ever, but also eye-opening and, and educational and wonderful. You get to see like what how someone really experiences your game. So if you're making a game, that's by far the best answer is just playtest the hell out of it. If you're making a demo, then you have to say, you know, okay, what am I really who, are, who am I really making this for? You kind of have to see through their eyes. I mean, you have to make that do that for a game too while you're developing it. You can't just playtest every line of code you wrote. But that that kind of playtesting and like you know seeing your audience. Um, I don't I don't I mean do you think do you really think that a life developers are that unique in the sense that there's not if they made something just for themselves that it would have no interest to other people? I'm saying that the particular percentage group of any given game playing audience may be relatively small with reg- and that doesn't mean that you know, artificial life developers don't get tens of thousands of users. That's not right. really the issue. The issue is whether these users translate to people that are uh, in, you know, game development companies or publishers or, you know, people reading Wired that live next door to any of the above. And I mean, I think that, that, that's the issue, really, that you need some way of translating what is, you know, quite a comfortable user base into something that would be interesting to, you know, a publisher or a game development studio. Well, here's another, this is sort of a fundamental understanding, I think, that we would have to have. The artificial life community really is enamored by biology, by real biology. And so there may be a disconnect between creating an environment that is inspired by biology and creating a game. Mm -hmm. So think of an artificial life system is more, I, th- I think of it as more as an environment, as a place where you observe and maybe have some interaction with things that are going on. Uh, it's a simulacrum. Mm-hmm. games is, is active engagement. So, for instance, our visual life this may be incompatible with, with game spaces because real life, say if you're walking out in your garden or whatever, you don't have a lot of, of high-performance game-like interaction with with uh, most biology out out there, outdoors. I mean, you might. Have You're growing the wrong kinds of plants, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. like the a little shop of horrors. Yeah, exactly. Feed me yeah. some more. Actually, I have I have a little story from this morning that, or or yesterday, that kind of relates to this. I was out out in the backyard. We have a lot of flowering plants out in the back, and I heard this woo, 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 sounded like a gigantic bumblebee, like. And I looked up and it was a hummingbird, right? Yep. I'd never heard the hummingbird sort of beating of the wings. It was just beautiful. The hummingbird was go- going after, you know, flowers, going into the, these great, big, beautiful flowers. And I have a little terrier dog. And I said, Higgs, what's that? What's that noise? And Higgs growls and looks up and looks around. And not that I wanted Higgs to attack the hummingbird, right? But there was a little game I was playing with these two creatures. One right. is my dog and one is this hummingbird that sort of came into this environment. And I don't know, I don't know, what, I, don't, I don't know, you know, perhaps there was an environment and these, these sort of convergence of creatures came together and I took advantage of it and sort of made a little game out of it. Well, I think and there are games actually that are starting to, I mean, games are not all about space marines blowing up aliens, right? And that's actually like, I mean, it's starting to broaden. It's not broadening fast enough in my opinion, but it's just starting to broaden. So you get games like Viva Pinata, uh, Animal Crossing, games like, you know, I mean, The Sims to some extent. I mean, they're, you know, they're not animals 
in your garden, but there are people that are, you know, really reacting to the environment and you, you know, pit them against each other and, or, you know, right. try and fall, make them fall in love. And I think that, uh, that, that kind of ambient, you know, poking at things, but the problem is, I mean, it, it is kind of evident in the fact that there have been no real Sims competitors. Like, it's very difficult to make those kinds of games. Like, it's very hard to understand why they work. Yeah, but I think this is what Bruce is bringing up. Bruce is saying that, in, in a sense, uh, an A-life simulation, a simulacrum that just runs and runs, it's an environment, is incompatible with the idea of a game, which I kind of agree with. But on the other hand, you can tune your, you can tune your environment, your artificial life environment, so that these convergences can happen occasionally. You might have to sit for, like, a half an hour and, and uh, appreciate the biota for a while before a hummingbird comes by and then you turn a game into it. Mm-hmm. So I think there might be a sort of, sort of attitude that you can apply to these environments that might make it game-like sometimes, but not all the time. The legacy of this conversation so far is that I disagree with, with both you and Bruce Jeffrey with regards to this, but perhaps it may be because I've lived in dark cityscapes and things like that and then <laughs> just make that into my garden in some regards <laughs> cognitively. No, I mean, my feeling is that what you, what you describe with regards to your garden, what you describe with regards to what we simulate, we're talking about, in some regard, organic environments, but we don't have to presuppose that artificial life simulation exists in uh, you know a flower at a garden or a petri dish, uh, it can exist in any kind of environment. And whilst contemporary games have elements of, of cityscapes and Grand Theft Auto, we're talking what have you, futuristic alien environments. All these things could be artificial life environments as well. It's yeah, I don't think the content. Yeah, I don't think that the, the the skin of it doesn't matter as much as whether the thing that's happening is behaviorally interesting. Um, I think there's a point that Will made in this. Like you, you one of the podcasts I, I briefly listened to was the the question and answer session with Will at that NASA thing, that Yuri's Night thing that you played on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I think. Or it um, wasn't Yuri's Night, but yeah, we. we ah, it, okay. It was, it was in January, but anyway. Oh, okay, okay. The question, I think it was Rudy Rucker asking the question about um, evolution versus, you know, the intelligent design and spore and whatnot. And um, and one of the things Will mentioned is something he said before of evolution actually happens over, you know, tens of thousands of generations, and it's very hard to make that, like, you know, meaningful to the player for a bunch of different reasons. And I think that, that you know, sit, sit for 30 minutes away for the hummingbird thing is kind of a is kind of another microcosm of that same problem where... Yeah, but I, figure, I mean, again, I don't want to, I don't want to be generally disagreeing with everyone, but my feeling is that was a misunderstanding with regards to the kind of evolution and the kind of environments that artificial life developers are creating. I mean, if you look at things like the flu and various other things in terms of rapid evolution in very short periods of time, evolution doesn't have to be slow. It doesn't have to exist in, in long time scales. It can happen very, very rapidly. It's just right, yeah, yeah. the algorithms. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't. I, I don't even mean to say. I think it's kind of in, in some sense scale invariant in, in the sense that I don't think it has to be absolute time long distance, but number of generations and you know what how, how many like how many points of how many points you know you got all these objects in the game and how how many interesting things are happening per tick whatever that, that I scale. think I think that's exactly it. If you don't if you look at it not so much in terms of time, but how many you know you can have a hundred events that are very uninteresting happen and then suddenly an interesting one happens punctuated equilibrium I think that might be more the property that that's that's the challenge as far as games I think you've given us a lot of food for thought here Chris what would you like to see from the artificial life development community in the next say five to ten years well, I think the, the website idea that you have is a great thing. I mean, if you if if, if something like that, you could go up there and browse. I mean, like I, I, I noticed, I, I didn't manage to listen to this the podcast that had the link, but you had a link to Congregate up there on your on your podcast page. Congregate, briefly for for people who haven't heard of it, is a, is basically trying to be a YouTube for Flash games. Basically, you know, you go up there and there's this huge community of people, and like you know, they've got eight thousand games or whatever, and you can go and like see the rated games and all things like that. You don't have to go anywhere near that level. I mean, they're you know venture capital funded and blah, blah, blah. But th- this kind of giant environment of these games, and by environment, I don't mean obviously a single A-life simulation, <laughs> but you know, a, lot of, a, a lot of demos that you can go up and see, and especially if some of them like, kind of con- contrast um, in a meaningful way with other ways of doing things. So if, you want to see, if you're trying to make a point that AL, A-life, you know, A-life technology is better at you know, thing X than, than some other technology, then fairly representing thing X it, as a best of breed thing and then saying, hey, here's how A-life would solve that problem and here's how, here's how it's different and better and worse. Um, that kind of in, you know, 
presenting your work with that kind of integrity is really important. I mean, oftentimes it's kind of a joke, a joke in the game industry where you read these, a lot of, you know, the game industry has a lot of money flowing through it now, and so it's gotten a lot of academic interest lately. And we're often reading academic research papers where they'll kind of set up a straw man of like, here's how, you know, pathfinding works before I got here, and here's my new amazing algorithm. But like, the algorithm they're doing is totally not how anyone would do pathfinding if they were really actually working on a game. And so not doing straw man, but actually taking a real crack at what is actually new and different about the thing you're trying to do and what are its pros and cons. I mean, having those things up, having a page of those would be totally great. So in terms of understanding that pragmatism, in terms of understanding what actually happens in game development, for folks that are new or starting out or interested in doing this in any way, do you recommend that they read game development books? Do you recommend that they seek out game developers? How do you see that interaction as going? Yeah, I mean, the Internet is just the most amazing thing in the world, right? I mean, we're all, I mean I'm sure we all spend most of our time on the Internet these days. The, it, compared to when we all started, the, the amount of information available at your fingertips is just overwhelming. So there are tons of websites, Gamasutra, GameDev.net, Flipcode. There's just a ton of websites. You just basically type anything remotely related to games and like type source code next to it, and you'll get some somebody's, you know, write-up about how they did it or, you know, a write-up about how, you know, some game that's coming out is, is doing it because they heard somebody talk at a conference. You know, there's all the all the audio from all of the GDC talks is available um, for pretty cheap. It's like five bucks a, a talk or something like that. Gamasutra has tons of articles, you know, and, and, and PowerPoints and all that kind of stuff from the conference. There's so much information out there. It's a, the, the problem is almost the inverse, which is how do you even focus on which the thing you want to do is, you know? And in Just terms of that, can you give any, you, you've given broad sites, but in terms of people that you think would be benefit official of reading, can you throw out a few names or a few companies or anything like that? Well, I mean, again, it's, it, there's so many different disciplines, it's hard to say. I mean, there are, I, mean I, I can't recommend any of the game development books because uh, I haven't read any in a, in a while, but there are a lot of game development books. There's books, that, you know, there's at least, I mean, a couple of years ago, there were at least three books on game physics, and that's not even counting the millions of, you know, first year, you know, books on actual rigid body dynamics that you can get that didn't have anything to do with games but are totally applicable. It's really a matter of, like, what interests you. There's, you, can, you can pretty much find write-ups. There's almost nothing secret in the game industry. That's the funny thing. Like, people think that the game industry, from the outside, like you mentioned trade secrets earlier, like, there's some concept that is, like, it's, it's pretty secret, but it's actually most game developers that I know are um, incredibly forthcoming with how they do things because most of them know that, like, the more you share, the more you get back. So, I mean, they're not going to give you the source code of Grand Theft Auto 4, but, like, you know, you can probably find out how they did any individual thing in there. And so, really, it's about what are you interested in. So, if you are interested in, say, I don't know, what to, you know, pathfinding, let's say you wanted to do this kind of, you know, a solution to pathfinding that uses, the, you know, some kind of cellular automata kind of thing. You know, there's a million different algorithms out there for pathfinding you could easily find. You know, it's agent-based simulation, flocking, you know, re- any kind of rendering thing, procedurally, procedural textures. You want to do, like, kind of, you know, reaction diffusion textures with A-life kind of things. There's a, just a ton of resources out there for all that. SIGGRAPH, um, almost all of the papers for the past 10 years in SIGGRAPH are all online. I mean, they're fairly technical, but, I mean, you're going to have to start, you know, ramping up on this stuff. But um, uh, there's one more thing I was going to say there, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, well, uh, did you have another question? With six minutes remaining, I was going to ask Bruce if he had any questions for Chris. Chris, do you think in the next 5, 10, 15 years we might see an, an actual authentic genetic, al- genetic-based evolving uh, critter in the game space that, uh, that a biologist might look at and say, well, this has kind of got a life cycle. It's kind of interacting with the players, and it's evolving and adapting and and developing unique properties that weren't programmed by the game developer. I think that, I don't know about the actual evolution happening in the game, just because it's hard for me to, I mean, never say never, right? As soon as you say something, that like, someone's going to come out with like a triple A mega <laughs> smash game that does this. <laughs> but it's hard to see what, where, how the evolution would be part of it, because it is so, it, it has so many of those characteristics we talked about earlier about that kind of sit back and watch aspect to it. Um, but I could easily see stuff that's bred offline and the results of which... Um, you know, populating AIs. As soon as we can come up with metrics for success along some of these axes, you know, as long as if you can define a scalar metric for something, you can run simulated annealing or genetic algorithms or anything on it. And I think that um, we're getting more, as we gather more and more metrics for gameplay, I think we're getting closer and closer to being able to kind of metricize some of this stuff that is kind of touchy feely right now. And if as soon as we can do that, then there's no, you know, you just you you, you know you buy your you know 10,000 node Linux cluster and like grind away at the better AI. I um, mean, what algorithm that takes, who knows? I mean, whether it's a genetic program and spliced together. Or 
or whether it's some giant neural net or whether it's, you know, a life cranking away and like, you know, kind of building these big glider gun composite craziness. Who knows? So that's my answer, my totally hand wavy answer. Jeffrey, do you have any any final question for Chris? Yeah, um, I some somebody made a point just a moment ago, and I think that you don't have to be always sitting at the computer to be playing the game. I think that you could spend an hour there and then you can leave and then you can have phone calls and exchange files with people offline, be plotting things with friends. And I think that evolution can be happening over the span of several months. And that's part yeah. of the game as well. So, so the fact that evolution is slow and not always interesting doesn't mean that it can't be part of the game. Yeah, in fact, to, to, to back that up with some recent activity, a lot of these Facebook apps, which are kind of the hot new thing in the Web 2.0 community and that sort of thing, are all about asynchronous gameplay. Um, you know, you've got all these hit games that are all about, you know, oh, I go when I want to, you know, and then it's your turn later, and then, what you know, there might be six hours in between those two, or two minutes, or whatever. And so there's a lot, actually, more space. A yeah. lot of these games don't actually have persistent server state and simulations are running while someone's not interacting with them, but it'd be an easy step to do that, you right. know, and then what happens during that time. That reminds me you of your event-based simulation idea, where, you know, you don't have to be continuously um, running a simulation. You can be using events. Kind of reminds Definitely. me of that idea. Yeah, no, I, I like that idea a lot. Chris, we have we have three minutes remaining. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with you this evening. You've given so many ideas, and I think uh, we'll all take away a, a different thing from what you've said and hopefully come back together in some kind of website with all the information that you've discussed. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with you this evening. Oh, my pleasure. It's, it's been great. Yeah, no, I, I, I would really love to see, because, I mean, when I, when I first got into computers and I first started writing about, you know, learning about physics, it was specifically to implement Carl. Sims Virtual Creatures paper. <laughs> so I have a long history with being very interested in this stuff, and I would love to see to see this kind of thing, you know, bear more fruit in, in the in the commercial game industry. Totally. Well, that's a challenge out to the community. Next week. Friday, 16th of May, I'm talking with Dick Gordon at 8 p.m. Pacific with regards to theoretical biology, physics, second life, and perhaps even this very podcast. I'd like to thank you three for uh, for the opportunity to chat this evening. 